I want to give a shout out to Aventus, the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto market. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chapar, Director of News at The Block. And today we have Rich Rosenblum, co-founder and president of GSR Markets. The last time you were on, oil was at like negative uh, $100 or something. <laughs> I don't It was negative 1000 bucks. We're happy to have you on and just unpack what we've been seeing in the markets. Rich has quite the Wall Street pedigree. Prior to GSR, he worked at Goldman Sachs, where he was the managing director and global head of crude oil and derivatives trading. Then he sort of moved over to the buy side and energy trading. But he's now leading basically strategy and growth for GSR, which is probably one of the largest liquidity providers in the space. They're sort of operating across various different products, and we can maybe touch on that later, but we're talking bespoke derivatives and structured products for the cryptocurrency market. Rich, always excited to talk with you, even though you know you should be on the show way more often, given how much I bother you on Telegram about various things happening in the market. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. It's, it's exciting seeing I'm the, the bookends of COVID. Hopefully that was the, the start and this is the end. So marking the beginning and the end of big events. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. Well, who knows with what's going on with this Delta variant, but hopefully, yes, this will be the bookend. Knock wood. There's been a lot happening, not just in cryptocurrency markets, but across the market. Um, a lot of you know, uncertainty is still out there. If we zoom in on crypto, though, as I was saying before we turn on the mics, we haven't had a markets-focused episode in a few weeks because not much has really changed. There's nothing that's sort of sticking out. We had those massive liquidations a month or two months ago that kind of drew us down. And now everyone's kind of asking, what's next? Are we in a bear market? So we'll start with that question. Are we in a bear market? And how long are we going to be stuck in the doldrums? I'd say we're in more of a, a stasis. I think that the market is getting more more iterated, more complex than do I buy it and hold it for this you know rampant bear market or do I get short. I think we're we're a bit in between here. I think one thing that's happened is a couple of months ago we lifted the the mask ordinance that unleashed this period where usually the weather's getting better around that time of year. People have worked hard all year, northern hemisphere, summer, they go out, they play sports, they they do you know entertainment related things, they party with their friends. This year was different in magnitude in that being stuck inside not just for six months, but for a full year and a half the magnitude of that summer effect, I, I think, was multiplied by by 5x. 
not only was there not even sports, you couldn't hmm. bet on sports. So the, the sport was sitting inside, being on your cell phone, being on the computer and betting on, on crypto. So once May 14th rolled around, you know, people were trading crypto less. They were also trading less, less SPACs. So you saw a lot of these retail or meme driven assets start to, to deflate. So I think that there's been strong seasonality around summers already periods where crypto would rally, it would take a bit of a break where people would have other stuff to do, but they would also fuel that stuff they're doing with the crypto. They'd spend some of the crypto. And so I think this summer is no different, just a bit more more potent. So I think that these next couple of months, because retail has other stuff to do, also because it was such a consistently strong period the prior six to nine months, you know, retail was largely knocked out. Not only is that leverage out of the system, from a phase sort of stage, but also a lot of the Asian exchanges that were offering that credit, especially the excess credit, like 125X, it's no longer even being offered. So I think we're mm-hmm. in this sort of in-between stage where people are wondering what's going to happen next. And I do think that from our standpoint, we're engaged with a lot of the builders in the space, unlike some of the other liquidity providers that trade similar size, but it's mostly Bitcoin or Ethereum. We've been since day one trying to you know, take away the, the friction between the entrepreneurs and the capital that wants to enter the market and seed and investing, helping incubate, bring these these new entrepreneurs to the market. And we're not seeing any of that slow down. There's, there's just as much building as we've ever seen. And I think we're, we're doing so much recruiting for our own company, it's hard to help our, our partners thinking of hiring, you know, recruiters specifically to help projects we're engaged with because on a, on a daily basis, they're saying you, know, you can't find enough talent out there. And so I do think that the drop in the market really isn't evident for what I think is going to happen with the future of prices. Um, if you look at private market valuations, many of these valuations are up 50% or doubled in the past two, three months. So Certainly the private equity companies that are coming to space and looking, they're, they've got more firepower than the VCs and they're not afraid to, to spend. So there's a lot of building, but the price of a token dropping by 50% in two, three months, I think it's pushed away not only retail, but some of the you know, institutional investors. So the token landscape is it's a little bit quieter, but uh, I'd say it's, you know, it's down, but not out. I think once we have a lot more of these tokens go more into the implementation phase than the sort of prototyping phase, you're going to see all the charts start to look more upward and to the right on users each day and on what you can actually do when you're online. So it's more bullish than I've ever been for the six month or one year, two growth points. But the next three months, I think it's going to be a bit quiet. There's a lot to unpack here and digest, but that's kind of my fault because asking whether or not we're in a bearable market is a loaded question in many respects. But to kind of summarize aspects of what you said, part of the bottom line for this sort of sanguine environment, which I think is how you pronounce it, talking about like a calm, you know, relative state of the market right now is tied to just the fact that it's summer, but not just summer, the fact that a lot of what was driving the energy in the earlier months of the year was fueled by traders who were overlevered and also kind of lacking other types of distractions aside from the markets. Now that's over potentially. And so that's kind of fueling the sort of state that we're in. But the juxtaposition of that to your other point is that there's all this action, right? We see it every day. There's fundraisers, there are companies that are 
not just raising hundreds of millions of dollars, but doing it a month after they had just raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So the private markets look incredibly rich despite the backdrop of sort of these more liquid assets. And we see this in some of the results and statements at firms like Robinhood this morning, we reported that they're kind of sound, not sounding the alarm so much, but at least putting out a warning saying, hey, our revenues will decrease in this upcoming quarter as a result of this decline in trading activity in crypto, right? The daily exchange volume was at an all-time high across exchanges at like $90 billion in late May. We're down to $21 billion. And there are other metrics that you can look at as well. I mean, if you look at the ranking of Coinbase on you know, the App Store, right? It was number one at one point for the first time in history just a few months ago. We're now down to 409. So the retail aspect of the market isn't looking great. What does that mean for you know, a firm like GSR as a market maker, liquidity provider, does the sort of retraction or retreat of retail change the way firms like GSR have to operate? It's a definite uh, yes, but to give a bit more color to it, I, you know, I was thinking about this visual when you described Robin Hood's last quarter. I think a third of their trading revenues were driven by Dogecoin. So someone could read that as they're looking to have a weak quarter, you know, a week next year, because there's going to be less crypto trading. But you know, can't really point to something that seems less sustainable than a third of the revenues being Dogecoin. It's almost like you know, at the county fair, somebody asks you to you know go on that game where you have to take the sledgehammer and you you smash the sledgehammer and then the little thing goes up. Well, it's like you hit the sledgehammer, it goes up so high, it like breaks the top of it and it flies into orbit. You know, it's not really a, a sustainable stat that I think they could look at. So. We didn't quite have that type of uh, a quarter year that passed, but it's it's certainly been you know by far and away the best best year we've had, and we've been a company that's been been all fueled by organic growth. There's no outside investors yet, so I think we've been a bit more moderate in the the pace that we've grown over the past uh, eight calendar years. But I think that we've seen more concrete evidence of a marketplace that's not going away, even if there's been some fear on the regulatory front. I'll see that as very positive and. We're having a much bigger footprint in the U.S. with applications for the bit license and a broker dealer secured significant office space in Midtown, New York, of all places. So we've made uh, a longer term decision that we think this this space is going to grow and grow in a, a big way. And so we've multiplied our headcount multiple times this year, We're headed towards around 225 people by end of year. And that was only you know, roughly 25 people a bit over a year ago. So Wow. I didn't know that. That's nuts. Mm -hmm. I guess kind of double clicking or, or kind of rehashing the question here. When you have retail kind of retreating, how does that impact maybe the, the sort of market dynamics, right? Do exchanges maybe need more help sort of providing liquidity? What does that mean for a firm in terms of what a liquidity provider needs to do? Or does that maybe not change so much? Yeah, so I think that a big part of what we did in years past was, uh, you know, be the picks and shovels for retail exchanges. That the retail exchanges, they did their best with a rapidly changing environment, and you know, the tech was often behind the pace that the market was growing at. And their main thing was to solve this puzzle of 
there's too many users that want to all trade at once and things were breaking. I think that the problems now are how can they be up to the regulatory stuff of new large entrants that want to come on board and have very high standard for their expectations on on the tech, on the regulatory footprint. And also if someone's going to go trade and it's uh, some retail users, they're going to have to all trade at once to create a billion in volume. But if you have uh, you know, larger institutional players, you know they could trade a billion from one user. So I think that there's a you know, different problems that they're going to have to to face. I think also if you just created any type of crypto exchange three years ago and we were a bit better than the rest, you could expect some users to come on board. Today, I think that there's a lot more competition. You have to really be standing out in a variety of ways because you know, groups are spending. You look at FTX, they're spending hundreds of millions on each sponsorship agreement at this point. So there's there's an arms race in terms of bringing in those new users and from a user experience level, you know, you have traders that used to trade on these crypto venues and creating their own exchanges because they thought they could do it better and it looks like they have done it better. And um, I think it's more about the, the other things you can add on top. Groups like Coinbase are paying 4% on USDC deposits. They're offering loans so you could borrow against your holdings. So I think that what we're seeing is that in traditional finance, there was a lot more isolation. And if you were an exchange, you're supposed to just provide that that trading element. You'd have clearing, settlement, execution, all provided by different companies. But thus far in crypto, you're seeing a lot more vertical integration where the exchange means a lot more things and it's providing a lot more services. And you know that might be more of a cyclical trend, not so secular, because as regulation comes in, it might break apart some of these interests because it could cause a lot more, more conflicts. But for now, I think that yeah, one of the, the challenges are that got to start asking for permission rather than begging for forgiveness mm-hmm. when it comes to the, the regulatory side. Also, I think that if you don't do right by a bunch of retail customers, they might vote with their keyboards and, and not come to trade again. But I think if you do wrong by institutional client, you know, often it's a smaller circle and they're going to tell their friends, um, including the uh, authorities, that you shouldn't be allowed to run exchange anymore. So I think that the challenges are, are far greater today and uh, you know, the rewards are stronger as well. I think when we looked at some of the valuations you know, three years ago, you know, some groups were starting to get into the low digit single billions and it sounded high. Now I think we have talks of uh, Sam looking to buy Goldman Sachs next is is, (laughs) is the talk. So uh, certainly people are shooting for the stars. What about the trading opportunities, right? If we go back to DeFi summer, it was insane beyond double digit. I mean, far beyond double digit liquidity mining opportunities and yield farming opportunities. The basis trade has been an ever-present opportunity, the sort of difference between where the spot and futures are trading. What opportunities exist right now in this very quiet environment for traders that maybe didn't exist a few months ago when things were a bit more louder? That's a great question. I think that the opportunities are not as uh, big on a percent gains perspective. I think part of DeFi is is predicated on having governance tokens rally, but I think that you're going to see bigger opportunities overall in that if you wanted to put X amount of dollars to work a year ago, the the DeFi summer, didn't really matter what you did 
um, you'd be having good sized returns and, you know, novices to experts were looking like geniuses. <laughs> I think today you could certainly put more money to work without moving the market as much because you don't have to chase a, an epic rally, which can scare some people off. You can be a bit more thoughtful. And that means both in terms of buying these liquid governance tokens, as well as getting into some of the, the private rounds, because um, there were points where even as a seasoned VC team, you would really need to make a decision almost you know, on the phone call, or at least that same day, if you want to get into some of these private rounds. Now, I think it's it's still quite bullish period for the, the early stage private rounds, but at least there's a little bit more due diligence happening. So I think that you know the percentage returns have faded for now, but I think that there's a bit more time to be able to make decisions. On the VC side, you can actually get into some of these deals or it's easier of a process to get into some of these deals. Is that where you... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's starting to be a bigger global market, but look at a, you know, CoinList, it's probably harder to get in today than it was even at the peak of the bull market because they've had such a pattern of success. Got to the, be the point where they have, you know, half a million individuals logging on to the website, you know, trying to get a piece of these early stage deals. But what they've done is, you know, reduce the ticket size so more people can get involved. So it's it's not true for every part of the market, but certainly you know, I think that's probably a trend. Another trend that's playing out, and this is probably very near and dear to your heart. If you look at the derivatives market relative to spot, I don't have the exact data to suggest that derivatives have flipping spot, but I think we're, we're either there or we're very close to being there. If you look at just futures, we're talking about $758 billion traded in July. That's just futures. And now for just fiat spot exchanges, we have in July, $132 billion. So the futures market is an order of magnitude greater than the fiat spot market. So we're kind of getting to the point of crypto's maturation where the derivatives market is sort of much, much larger than spot, which wasn't the case a few years ago. That's kind of the backdrop. But someone on Twitter just asked an interesting question about what does this sort of volume uptick in derivatives relative to sort of spot being dampened mean for the market? I think it's a natural maturation point. Could look at it as just balance sheet optimization, whether that's for a company's balance sheet or for an individual. People see, you know, futures as a you know, levered retail that might not really know what they're doing. They just want to max out their leverage. But often it's more of a sophisticated way to trade where if you don't think Bitcoin is going to drop more than 50% within the window, you're going to trade it. Why fully fund it? You could at least have 2x leverage. And then whether you're going to take that extra capital and put it into something yield bearing or just keep it on the sidelines, you don't have to put all the cash into a position and you'll preserve most of the same characteristics as you would for the spot trade. So I think that's a, a natural place to be. I think the next level is with options. The options growth is going to continue to be buoyant as well as DeFi options on a almost on a weekly basis. We're finding a new group that wants to trade decentralized futures and especially decentralized options. So in the same way, we saw a league time of about six months before DEXs took off. We're right at that point now where I think that it feels like six months from now, we're going to see a ton of decentralized options flow. I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance, market risk, and transaction monitoring. With some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies 
in their regulatory operations and mitigate the risks of fines and reputational damage. Visit AventusSystems.com today to find out why 80% of the firms who take a custom demo become clients. Shine a light on your trading today with Aventus. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone, and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at Exodus.com today. I think there's a lot of people who are looking at like sentiment right now, and there is a lot of activity on the VC side and the private side. But if you look at just the state of the liquid market, and this is Larry Cermak's words and not mine, how can you look at it and not think that it is just dead right now? What are the silver linings like on the sort of non-private side? Silver linings. Or maybe it does look a little... I think that, uh, what was it, Dan Heltz who posted something just today and it said... Prices as of July. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but it's like three dollars, thirty dollars, three hundred, three thousand, thirty thousand. And if you look at that chart, you're missing some of these points where we had that fifty percent or more drop, like we did in the past two months, and you're just seeing this straight arrow up. And what it shows next to it is a you know a line saying that the most successful asset ever, Bitcoin. I think that when you zoom out that far, it, it paints a better picture. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to be on here and say things look great. I think that we're at a point where technically yeah, we're around some supports. But if you're looking at information, ignoring all the private evaluations, which look great, we also have arguably the main place of crypto mining and trading throughout the history of the market mm -hmm. um, be completely uh, against Bitcoin. So if they just throw it out and on the gauntlet and really have it be a different situation than prior years where it's sort of a stop and go where they say something negative and then immediately later they say something positive. It does seem like this is China and will have impacts on, on broader Asia saying they're anti-cryptocurrencies except their own central bank digital currency. So I think that the long term looks looks good, you know, thematically from an investment standpoint. But yeah, I think that the pricing is dicey here. I think the sentiment to people who aren't in the space 24-7, I wouldn't be surprised if they think it, it, it looks ugly. You brought up China, which I think is really interesting and something I wanted to talk to you about. What are the flows out of China specifically looking like? That seems to be, and this is from Alex Miller on Twitter. Thank you, Alex. This seems to be the biggest unknown factor right now. Mostly machines going to the US or North America, I should say. I mean, that's, that's the most obvious. It's... Uh, it's so oftentimes where you, you read headlines, you hear rumors, and it seems like it's uh, you know BS or speculative. Here, 
there is a, a massive movement going outside of China. I think that before the events the past couple of months took place, it was more of a, you know, a few percent per year, maybe as much as 10. Now, uh, it's not fully determined yet, but I think it could be you know, 50% of the machines are moving from Asia to the Americas within a six-month span, which uh, is pretty unheard of. I don't think anyone would have predicted something like that. And definitely heard about a regulatory push or some interests that could have been exacerbated by the government, you know, five-year planning committee. But I'd say this amount of, of migration of machines is certainly not something anyone predicted. You guys are based in Hong Kong. What sense do you guys have of this sort of mining crackdown's impact on firms on the trading side versus the mining side? And, and does it in any way impact GSR? Great question. So, so far, activities are surprisingly not as impacted for us as we would have expected. I think it might be because some of the, the fear from mainland companies has caused people to want to look for other options and it's caused us to have more inbounds. But I think that... Um, you know, there, there has been some focus, whether it's on OTC desks or exchanges or traders to reduce their activities. It doesn't seem like there's been as much shock and awe to completely close areas down. It seems like they're more partitioning the activities and saying, which are okay, which are, are not. But um, for our growth, we've we've still planned for it to be in an you know, important part of our growth for the future. But I think that for now, like, where are we going to be focusing? I think that mm -hmm the token projects hadn't been as active in, in Asia. I think that it's been a place where I think a lot of the entrepreneurs would move to the US or even Europe. I think China, some of the top projects have been you know, copies of the US projects or broader, broader Asia. I think they're still active. So I think that part of our business will continue to see growth because it's still a laggard behind the extreme amount of entrepreneurship we've seen in the US. Mining, I do continue to think we'll, we'll see a lot of mining in the region, but you can see some of its move to Kazakhstan or other neighboring regions. And I think with China, it's it's still a bit early to be sure, but uh, the trend has been very strong for people to you know move to somewhere that's you know friendlier from a regulatory perspective. Interesting. So I guess you'd say the like decrease or wh whatever people would think of as a decrease of buy power out of China or Asia isn't really there necessarily. There's generally a lot of money and entrepreneurship in Asia. Or sell interest, I meant to say. Yeah. Uh, selling interest, um, I would definitely assume that if you charted a lot of the, you know, where the selling of Bitcoin has been been from, there should have been some related to, to mining. But I wouldn't agree with what the pundits have been saying. The reason was like the largest miners are selling Bitcoin to afford moving their machines. I don't really think that's why. I think the cost to move the machines is paltry compared to the amount of Bitcoin some of these groups are, are sitting on. And um, a lot of them have just made an enormous amount of Bitcoin and is more of a game to create as much Bitcoin as possible rather than looking like an operating business with to pay the employees. I think they've already won it big. But I think that going forward, if you take mining out of the picture, what are these people going to be, be doing? I think they still like to trade crypto. They haven't had an outright ban on, on trading. I think that there's ancillary services around DeFi, around technology that the people that have caught the, the crypto bug and are still going to want to be deeply involved in. And I think that if mining is illegal, you know, staking is illegal, it might mm -hmm. be that they take these similar specialties and shift it into something similar. DeFi was hot and NFTs were hot at one point before the sort of retail interest got sucked out of the market. 
have you guys explored, I know you guys are interested very heavily in DeFi, but have you guys explored how you could make markets in NFTs and, and what would that look like? Yeah, I think when you have a one unique asset, it does make it a little more complex, but there are some obvious ways. I think, um, you know, being experts in commercial focused uh, algorithms, it can be impactful on creating new auction mechanisms. There's been some pretty creative auctions that have taken place and the same types of thinking, like we've got you know, over a hundred people that have math or computer science degrees. There, there, there tends to be the same types that will come up with these sort of tools. Another is um, what they call additions. You'll have a piece of art and instead of there being one, whether there's 10 or a thousand, there'll be multiple editions of the same piece. And once you have, it's still an NFT because there's a limited amount of them or it's on itself, it's NFT. But then if the price is going up, our algorithms will detect that and raise the price versus if they're selling, hmm. um, the algorithms will detect it and go down. So I think additions and the auctions are one place. And also I think being in the market for so long and having so much reach, work with so many different teams. We've also just been impactful from a strategy and partnership side, as I mentioned before, in terms of you know, hiring. So a few of our clients are leaders in the NFT space, and I think they looked to, to us not only as a trading partner, but also as just a you know, outsourced partner um, in terms of helping with their business from a financial perspective more broadly. What do you mean? Uh, let's say someone's uh, going to raise uh, you know, growth equity versus oh, sell more tokens. How do I think about the difference between those two or like someone's going to create a, a token, they want to know about the regulatory landscape, which law firm should they speak to? No, any kind of question that comes up, I think that we're in this consultative capacity. And when they've asked a few questions two years ago when they got started and they like the answers, get in the habit of just seeing it as a you know first place to go with any type of question. So has that kind of formed into a new type of business for GSR? Maybe we can walk through exactly what GSR looks like today, because I feel like when you go from being 25 people to 200 some odd people, you're not, you're not doing exactly <laughs> all this. You're not just doing the stuff you were doing a year ago. You're probably doing many other different things now. Yeah. In addition to having, you know, outright new business lines, like, you know, getting into DeFi in a big way, uh, in investment management, still, I think the biggest part of our, our headcount and, and mind space globally as a company is assisting issuers, you know, these entrepreneurs that are creating a coin or a token. And I think that we've always been there from the cerebral part of trying to help people as a strategist, as a you know, consultant. I think it's a bit more on the, the breath and the follow through in that if a group is working on something in DeFi, if we have a DeFi team and we could contribute, you know, TVL to their project, or we can, you know, actually build in Solidity something that's going to going to help them, and you know, they're highly modular. You can you know, put pieces together, you know, that gives us a bit more firepower to contribute. Now there is in terms of capital. I think we were we were writing fifty thousand dollar, hundred thousand dollar tickets, uh, you know, a few years ago. Now it might be, you know, 10 million is the most recent tick we've written for one of these projects. And I think that to be a credible investor and um, know which products are going to be successful based on, you know, the history of the ones we've worked with and being able to now, you know, follow uh, lineage of which projects that the entrepreneurs have worked on, whether they've been successful or not, I think, you know, educate some of our other businesses because we'll know which partners to, to be building with from the engineering perspective. 
But yeah, I think that biggest difference from you know three plus years ago was that you know we started in the market as being an algo trader and using software to fill the gaps on what um, humans alone clicking mice couldn't do to now also bridging you know, derivatives liquidity into the market. And so as the other sort of uh, branch of the DNA of the original partners in the firm had strong algo trading background as well as you know derivatives. And so we use derivatives both in terms of the, the pricing of a lot of our contracts and help unleash embedded optionality within some of the assets of partners we work with. And we use these as tools for groups to not only speculate, but to, to hedge and use it to, to unleash some, you know, unlock tokens in a, a friendly way, because often there's uh, you know, lockups in the early stages and groups want to, to get out of some of those tokens, but often don't want to have it be that it's all released at once. So you can use you know, optionality to more slowly bridge those tokens out or OGC swaps. So I think derivatives probably one of the biggest components. And also, I think just being properly global, the original team was mostly based in the EU. And then we realized that it's it's not sustainable having phone calls at all times of days and the weekend, since a lot of the customer base in the US and Asia. So now relatively getting towards an equal split in terms of headcount with the 130 some odd people we have. So I think that's uh, another difference. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So a huge component of this expansion is just being across different segments of the market, whether it's DeFi, derivatives, et cetera. I think for some people listening who are kind of maybe they've, they've fallen down the DeFi rabbit hole or are really interested in what that market could mean for finance, thinking about a market participant offering or sort of providing liquidity in that market might sound backwards, right? Like what is the point of having these different intermediaries in a market that's supposed to sort of usurp or render them useless? Like, is this just sort of something that we need for the interim? Or at what point do we have a DeFi market where there are no sort of centralized liquidity providers that we sort of need to rely upon? Obviously, there there can be different counterparties engaging, but how would you sort of maybe someone who's listening kind of walk them through that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Like, why would a centralized market maker be getting into DeFi, it does seem a bit counterintuitive that the whole thing is built on the fact that you shouldn't need a market maker because it allows retail. And I think to, to zoom out a bit, I would think about it more in terms of um, we have self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. You know, Tesla's been around for over a decade now, and it seems like people didn't quote unquote get it until last year. You know, it was one of the stocks where it was the most shorted and a lot of haters around. Then the stock went up, you know, six or seven X last year alone. I think people realize that it's more of a software problem than a hardware problem. And I think when people look at DeFi, I had a call just, uh, just yesterday with uh, one of the larger financial players in traditional assets. And they say, yeah, this stuff's neat. It's quirky. But what problem are we really solving? Is this um, remittances? Like what's out there that needs to be solved that isn't solved yet? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. And I think um, I, I took him through this story of which 15, 20 years ago, you, know, you had from brick to click, you would take away the brick and mortar building and it would add all this value because uh, economies of scale, you wouldn't need the buildings and it could just be you know, humans operating online. Next stage was that you know, five, 10 years later, you take away the humans altogether and it's just all software driven company. I think the part that a lot of people are missing is DeFi is self-driving finance, 
where you're taking away the company altogether. So it's easiest to visualize when it's an exchange, when there's a small amount of people, whether they're the employees, management, mm-hmm. uh, investors, and they're getting inordinately rich because the exchange gets paid small amounts every second, all day, every day. And that money and that governance goes to a small set of individuals. Instead, with DeFi, the governance and the rewards go back to the individuals that participate in that network. And that idea is so foreign to most of the world that I think that, yes, a company like a GSR, other traders out there, we might have an impact on the early trading to help saturation come out, to help invest in these platforms. That's really just the beginning. I think some of the things that we're working on in concert with other other founders in the space a lot of them have nothing to do with trading or lending, and it's decentralized gaming, it's decentralized Web3 applications. So I do think that if we're still having the same type of call two years out about GSR being a DeFi trader, it's going to be a bit tired that things are always evolving and changing. And I think that we are helping groups sort of get pushed out of the nest so that they can have their you know, exchanges fly and be impactful to be able to compete with the bigger vendor funded uh, CFI exchanges. But I think the next stage is going to be that they're going to be you know, creating bigger, more interesting ecosystems that do more, more interesting things than just exchange value. I want to shift gears just a smidge, and maybe this can kind of be how we close. It's kind of a plug on some of the news you guys have made earlier this summer, back in June, you guys kind of came out and announced that you guys were going carbon neutral, including for a Bitcoin mining business, which I forgot. I feel like you let me know, but I totally forgot that you guys have this this one part of the business. So that's been, I mean, a lot of people attribute China's push to go green to the mining ban, although we've been kind of stuck in like a twilight episode situation with China constantly banning mining. But anyway, regardless, a lot of it could be tied to ESG concerns. How did you guys, you know, as one of the oldest and largest liquidity providers in the space kind of go carbon neutral for the Bitcoin mining operation? I think in in having it be a fortunate year, we were thinking about ways to go back and, you know, help the community. And in terms of ESG focus, it was it was one of the more obvious places where we could think we can make an, an impact. And I think we were just a bit earlier than the rest of the market rumblings, not more than a a couple months or so, but I think that it's you know not to be meant to have the, to be something token. More that I think that it's a good signal to the market for others to to follow. Today, I think our our machines are actually on summer holiday. We're engaged with finding new homes for them in the U.S. since they were largely mm. um, in Asia. But I think going forward, you know, we're we're in a space. So right where, now they're really they're really green. <laughs> oh, super green. <laughs> We're the greenest machines on, on in the universe, I'd say. Hopefully, they're they're somewhere safe. I saw this video in Malaysia of a giant steamroller crushing a thousand different miners. Uh, it shows the people think it's like a Terminator certain scene from Terminator Two, where they're just like <laughs> crushing all these machines. And in my head, the uh, you know the commercial guy in me is like, they didn't think to just turn them on and do something cleaner with the energy uh, to to create more capital, unless Malaysia is just you know, wanted to make a They wanted to make a statement. Yeah, a statement. They wanted to make a statement out to the world. Um, Well, Rich, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been really fun, and people on Twitter are already having loads of fun and are excited for this to come out. I guess before we close, 
Is there any way listeners can learn more about you and, and what GSR is up to follow along on the liquidity providing journey? I'd say we try to do a good job with uh, you know, putting information on the website, but in uh, multiplying the, the headcount and doing a lot of investments, one of them is going to be uh, a whole rebranding. So maybe wait till our next podcast and we'll have something more interesting to, to signal. Ah, rebranding. What is there going to be a new logo or something? I hope so. That one from eight years ago. Uh, what know, is it? What's the logo it's now? Kind of, it's kind of like uh, if there were to be a globe being enveloped by crypto. You know, I guess it's just oh, trying yes. to show we're global and we're we're liquid. And it was great for 2013. I, I think that you know, once every decade, it's good to relogo yourself. Maybe it could just be like your face at the center of it with like a bunch of um, splashes of, of water coming out. We'll, we'll note that as one of the, the ideas. <laughs> I think that's a good one. Rich. GSR, thank you so much for coming on the show. See you soon. Thanks, Frank. Have a great week. Thanks, you too.